Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the John G. Riley House Museum in Tallahassee. The house was almost lost. The city bought it for back taxes, and the plan was to demolish it and erect an electric substation on this site. We'll discuss two letters written by Seminole chiefs in the early 1800s. In each letter is essentially a response to a talk or another letter sent by the uh, Panton Leslie Company, uh, which was an Indian trading company, to the Seminole Chiefs. We'll go to the Citrus Tower in Claremont. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Come in and welcome to my home. I was just catching up on my passion, reading. You know, there was a time when a man like me was not allowed to read. You see, I was born into slavery on September 24th, 1857, right here in Tallahassee. Though President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in January 1863, we did not get our full freedom until May 20th, 1865. That was the date when General McCook was sent to Florida to read the proclamation for the benefit of all states that were still holding slaves. Florida was one of those states. That's an animatronic version of John G. Riley talking with students at the Riley House Museum in Tallahassee. The life-size robotic figure speaks from behind Riley's desk, hands gesturing, mouth moving, and eyes blinking as the figure tells visitors about Florida history. John G. Riley was a late 19th century educator in Tallahassee's African-American community. Althamese Barnes is founder and executive director of the Riley House Museum. John Gilmore Riley uh, was born in Lynn County, was born into slavery in 1857, and uh, he lived to 1954, so he was 97 years of age. So, of course, he lived to experience much change in those 97 years. After slavery, he chose to go into education, uh, uh, did some study. Of course, during slavery, he was denied the opportunity to read and write, but he learned from some of his relatives who uh, were literate. John Riley went on to become a principal of the first uh, school for African Americans here in Lynn County that carried a secondary program. He was principal for 33 years, from 1893 to 1926. Um, at the same time, he was amassing a lot of real estate. A lot of it was right here, right in downtown Tallahassee. In addition to his career in education and his success with real estate, John G. Riley also served as the Grand High Priest of the Royal Archmasons of Florida, an African-American fraternal organization. His home, which is now the Riley House Museum, is the only existing structure that remains from a community called Smoky Hollow. At the beginning of the 20th century, Smoky Hollow was a thriving African-American community with black-owned businesses, schools, and churches. 
Alphamese Barnes explains that Smoky Hollow was destroyed with eminent domain in the late 1960s. During its um, existence, that was the time of legal segregation. So there were very independent black communities that evolved out of a necessity to survive. So where you had families, you also had to eat, so there were stores, uh, the schools, there was a passion among, especially when uh, blacks came out of slavery, there was a great passion for religion and education. So usually in most of those black independent communities, you would find a school and churches, and then the other thing was a cemetery, and usually the cemetery was attached to the church. So you, you had these we, uh, I call them now enclaves where blacks lived and um, relied a lot upon each other to, to deal with uh, the social issues of hostility and um, injustices, if you will, inequality that existed. The Riley House was threatened with demolition, just like all of the other structures in the Smoky Hollow community, but because of its particular historical significance, it managed to escape the wrecking ball. Restoration of the home began in the 1970s, and it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1978, but the building didn't really function as a house museum until the mid-1990s. Alphamese Barnes. It started in the 70s, and the first complete restoration was in 1981. Uh, the house was almost lost. The city bought it for back taxes and the plan was to demolish it and erect an electric substation on this site. Some local citizens who knew all that Mr. Riley had contributed decided that they, that shouldn't be. So they raised $95,000, acquired it back from the city, and then pursued the restoration through some CDBG funds and other means. Um, from 1981, when it was restored, it went underutilized again for about 18 years. Um, I retired in 1995, but the people who saved the house didn't live long enough to do the second thing that they wanted to have happen, which was for it to be a museum to preserve African-American history and promote the history. So um, when I retired, I decided to make this my philanthropic effort, came and we started the museum January of 1996, and of course it now has evolved such that um, it is a six-day-a-week operation. The John G. Riley House Museum is a two-story wood frame building on brick piers with a gable roof and brick chimney. In addition to period furniture from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the museum has rotating gallery space. Unfortunately, when we came along, all of the furniture, original furniture, was gone. So what we did was to acquire period pieces that, replic that uh, would have existed during his 97-year lifespan. Also, what, because we bring in traveling exhibits and then we fabricate our own exhibits based on research that we do, it keeps uh, the, the, the interest going. Some places uh, people know, well, you go one time, you see what's there. And really, if you go back, say, three weeks later, three months later, six year, you'll see the same thing. But here you have uh, different parts of history 
conveyed through art, sometimes conveyed through artifacts, historical photographs, and so we rotate out at least twice a year. In addition to serving as founder and executive director of the Riley House Museum, Alphamese Barnes also leads the Florida African American Heritage Preservation Network, a coalition of 41 museums throughout the state. The network is a professional association wherein we work with museum directors with le- in leadership development, skill training, helping to develop programs, all of those museum management, collections, care uh, matters that are so important to our field. One thing, most of the museum directors, African-American museum directors, did not have the training for this. So establishing the network in 1997, we have been able to provide those opportunities to not only raise their skill and leadership levers, but also help develop their uh, facilities. So um, that was one of the things we were working on this morning, uh, trying to make sure that our uh, legislators and others understand the value of what the network is doing. And I would like to add as well that the Florida network has been declared a model by the Smithsonian National African American Museum, so much so that we are now developing an MOU, and they want us to help them develop Georgia, Texas, and Virginia along the same model that we created. And in December of 2012, I was um, appointed to the Institute of Museum and Library Services National Board by President Obama, and of course that Institute, IMLS, has oversight for all museum and library funding that comes to the United States. So Florida has a lot to, um, to value in the network and what we do and other museums like ours, the L.B. Brown House in Bartow, Florida, uh, Blanchett House Museum, Ponta Gorda, Rhoda Martin in Jacksonville, and I could just go on and on rattling them off. Um, These museums provide a great service to the state of Florida. The mission of the Riley House Museum is to preserve African-American history through exhibits, educational presentations, and publications. The museum encourages ongoing research by maintaining an archive. We have an archive at um, the the, um, Tallahassee Community College, but we also look for those, um, for that history that often is hidden in plain view. And so each year we find something like Robertson True Blood Swimming Pool. Why is it there? Because it was segregation and there needed to be a place for blacks to swim. What were, what did, how did blacks get an education early on? There were 52 one-room schoolhouses right here in Lynn County that were built starting 1866, right after slavery, so that blacks would be kept close to the plantation as a source of labor but would also satisfy their desire and passion for education. And the history, and so those are the kind of topics that we research. Um, Pioneers who were the first midwives brought all of us into the world. They've been gone, but many people wouldn't know about them if it were not for our research. Uh, Miracle Hill Nursing Home is in Tallahassee, a 120-bed nursing facility. First one built 
that Af African Americans could utilize, but now over 50% of the clients are of other races. But the man who caused it to happen has been probably deceased about 15, 18 years now. Many people wouldn't have known that Moses General Miles led that initiative if Riley didn't bring it forth, document it, and a big part of our um, program is to document through publications, books, CDs, um, textbooks, all of it. We've, it runs the gamut. The Riley House Museum has recently completed construction on a two-story visitor center adjacent to the 1890 home. And one thing that that visitor center will do is allow us to do more programs where we bring people in to share the history. We, we think we're going to call them uh, intimate historical moments. Not just black history, but history, uh, African-American history, and that interrelated history that, um, that the, we find as we research that there are commonalities, there are differences, there are some things that are replicated across race and culture. So um, that's one good benefit of the new visitor center. And we won't have to hold meetings in the gallery space. I have people come from the Smithsonian and the National Trust, and we're in here trying to meet, and someone comes for a tour, and we say, oh, excuse us, but, you know, keep looking. So now we will be able to take them over to uh, the visitor center. My big concern is, is the financing. I just hope we will be able to sustain both properties. We are a nonprofit, totally nonprofit. Um, I'm hopeful that um, the leadership will see fit to help us get some kind of sustained funding in here because we exist totally off of competitive grants and the fundraising that we do. The John G. Riley House Museum is located at 419 East Jefferson Street in Tallahassee. Reading is very important to me. You see, after my family was released from slavery, I decided I would read every book I could find and become a teacher. I wanted to teach as many people as I could how to read and write. My mother, Sarah, used to say, John, you will face good times and bad times. You will get things and lose things. And folks may try to take things away from you, but they can't ever take away what you have in your head. In 1893, I became principal of the high school for Negro students, Lincoln Academy. One of my most important involvements next to my job as principal and my church work at St. James CME is working with Booker T. Washington and the Negro Business League throughout Florida to advocate racial uplift through economics and education and promote racial harmony. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and get our daily post today in Florida history. Say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bone. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Letters in the archive at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa indicate that by the early 1800s, Seminole Indians had accumulated significant debt with the Panton Leslie Company store. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History. Okay, well today we're looking at uh, two letters from Seminole Indian chiefs. The first is dated uh, 1801. Uh, the second is uh, dated sometime after 1803. Uh, and each letter is essentially a response to a talk or another letter sent by the uh, Panton Leslie Company, uh, which was an Indian trading company, to the Seminole Chiefs, um, essentially just uh, uh, referencing some debts that are owed to the company um, by some of these Seminole clans. So we're looking at two letters uh, in response to um, uh, earlier uh, inquiries about debts owed to the company. And we should point out that these are the actual letters. I mean, you can tell that the, the paper is very old and it's a very uh, meticulous uh, handwriting on the letter. Right, that's right. Uh, so, we're, so we're looking at the original letters uh, as they uh, uh, would have been sent uh, from the Seminole Chiefs. Uh, they were transcribed by um, uh, what they called mixed breed or, or uh, mixed blood uh, traders. These were people who were uh, either half Creek or half Seminole uh, and probably uh, related to uh, uh, European traders or, or related to uh, an American in some way. So they spoke both English and the, uh, the native tongue of the Seminoles and the Creek uh, leaders. So they were essentially working as interpreters, but they would transcribe these talks uh, and then send them to, uh, at this point, it would have been Pensacola, to the company headquarters. Uh, so this is the original letter that John Forbes, the owner of the company, would have opened up and read uh, read aloud. Well, tell us a little bit about the uh, content of the letter. Sure. Uh, both letters are actually quite brief. Um, uh, the first letter from 1801 is really only two, uh, two pages. Uh, and essentially, like I said, it's a response to uh, an earlier letter, or what they call a talk. They didn't refer to them as letters, but they called it a talk. So this is a response to um, a talk from John Forbes, um, essentially uh, saying that uh, uh, we acknowledge uh, this particular uh, group of, of Seminole Indians or this clan of Seminole Indians owes the uh, Panton Leslie Company quite a bit of money for goods that were traded uh, uh, with the expectation of deerskins being traded back to the company. Now at this point, um, the, the population of, of white-tailed deer uh, in the southeastern U.S., this is North Florida, uh, southern Georgia, and, and southern Alabama, uh, the population of white-tailed deer was almost completely depleted. Um, and that really was the, the primary commodity that these European companies were, uh, were vying for. That's what they were trading uh, powder and weapons and, and European clothing for. 
so when the uh, Seminole tribes couldn't produce these commodities, um, they had to come up with another way to settle these debts. And essentially, these letters are proposing um, that the Seminole Indians give the company land. Uh, and when I say land, I'm talking about enormous tracts of land, uh, tens of thousands into millions of acres of land eventually. Wow. Well, could you uh, read a selection from one of the letters? Sure. This is a, a letter from a Seminole chief to the Pant and Leslie Company. Uh, and in the second paragraph, after sort of going through the formalities of, uh, of uh, announcing who the, who, what chiefs are present um, and what their intentions are, uh, the second paragraph starts, uh, Some time ago, a few of our young people were led astray by one of our white men. We now got them to rights again. And for the robberies they committed on your stores and the many debts which we owe and are not able to pay, we agree to grant you the tract of land which you and Yahula Amathla, which is the name of a chief, agreed on at Pensacola. We hope, therefore, to see you soon at the Estenfanulga, which is a, a, would have been a small settlement, where all the chiefs will receive you and sign the grant. And then when all talks are straight, we hope to see you a white path to your trading houses and forget all past talks as we don't like to hear anything of what is past. Interesting. And, and you have the actual letters here at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa uh, protected. Uh, if you'd explain a little bit about uh, how, you, how you store these documents. Sure. Each letter is actually separated. So uh, even if the letter was part of a collection of letters, say there were four or five, each individual um, uh, sheet of paper, a piece of paper, is housed in its own um, acid-free uh, plastic called Melanex. Uh, and each Melanex sleeve containing a uh, letter is then placed inside of an acid-free uh, manila folder, which is then placed inside of an acid-free um, archival box, which is about one lineal, lineal foot in, in capacity. Uh, and then they're housed uh, in, our, in our facility, um, uh, which is upstairs on the third floor, um, away from, uh, essentially away from, from public viewing unless, you know, requested. But um, we, we try and keep them away from ultraviolet light and, of course, away from um, any other uh, uh, light disturbances or, or anything like that. So these letters are actually part of a larger collection? Right. Uh, these are two letters of approximately 1,200 uh, documents that were donated to the Florida Historical Society back in the 1930s uh, by two uh, individuals who were descendants of the original owners of this Indian trading company um, that existed in Florida in the late uh, 18th and early 19th century. Uh, and essentially, each collection is still separated um, uh, by the, the family that donated the document. So we have two separate collections, um, but they overlap, their content overlaps. So they both focus on the Panton Leslie Company and the John Forbes and Company. Um, uh, but essentially, they all sort of deal with the, uh, uh, the early uh, the business of, of Indian trade um, during the second Spanish period in Florida. Hey, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History. I owe my soul to the company store. This is Florida Frontiers. Long before the huge theme parks were built in central Florida, the state was known for interesting roadside attractions. Chip Ford takes us to the Citrus Tower in Claremont.
That is the sound of the Carillion Bells at the Citrus Tower, located off of U.S. Highway 27 in Claremont, Florida. When they sound off every 15 minutes during the day, the bells can be heard throughout the community of Claremont. One of the current owners, Greg Homan, explains more about them and the community's response. Uh, the original bells uh, are in the lobby, but we're not using them anymore. We now use it, we, it's all done electronically, and, and uh, I just get a huge response from the community thanking me for keeping them going. And they walk out of Publix and they hear them, or out of Belks, and, and they just, they just, I get thank yous all the time. They, they're delighted by them. The sound of Carillion Bells has been associated with the Citrus Tower since its opening in the mid-1950s. The bells were the idea of the man responsible for the construction of the Citrus Tower, Pittsburgh jeweler A.W. Thacker. While on vacation in Claremont in 1952, Thacker noticed the large amount of automobile traffic on Highway 27 and understood the economic possibilities of building a roadside attraction in that community. It's interesting, the story of the tower. It was built in 1955 to showcase the citrus industry, and it was on Route 27. That was before the turnpike was built, and three of the main tourist attractions in Florida in the 50s were Silver Springs on Highway 27. That's where the Tarzan movies were filmed. The Citrus Tower, where the tourists would stop and have their fruit shipped back up north, and they'd go up the top of the tower and look at all the citrus groves. Lake County at the time was producing more citrus than the whole state of California. That was before the freezes. And then Cypress Gardens. Uh, that were, those were the big three attractions, and that's back when you could get in your car and drive and go on a two-week Florida vacation, and it's, it's always been uh, very popular to the tourist industry, and it still is. So it, it's a neat story. The Citrus Tower represented a place to motoring tourists that showcased the exotic qualities of the state of Florida. In this case, the ability to cultivate large numbers of orange trees. Oranges were seen as a symbol of health and vitality by the American public, and the images of oranges became synonymous with the state of Florida. The Citrus Tower, by showcasing Florida's abilities to cultivate oranges, became identifiable with the citrus industry. As it became identifiable with the community of Claremont, it also came to be identified with the state of Florida. The other owner of the tower, Susie Homan, explains. I think it's easily identifiable with Claremont, but it's identifiable with Florida and basically all over the country. Um, year, about 10 years ago, I was in New York City with my mom for her birthday, and we stood outside the Today Show, like every, you know, like any tourist, and Al Roker stuck the microphone in my face, and I just blurted out, I'm from Claremont, Florida, home of the Citrus Tower. I didn't even really plan to say it, and my husband said immediately the phone was ringing here. But what I remember is there was a man behind me that said, was from Indiana, and he goes, oh, I've been there. I, I know the Citrus Tower. One time we were on a trip, actually again in New York, and we were at the Marriott Marquis, and there was a map of Florida in the gift shop that had the Citrus Tower on it. So we find things, we love to antique and, and flea market, we find things all over the country that have little things with the Citrus Tower on it. In its heyday, the Citrus Tower was a thriving roadside attraction. After the freezes in the latter half of the 20th century, which destroyed the orange groves in Claremont, the original purpose for the tower was gone. Today it stands as an architectural artifact of an era in Florida tourism when roadside attractions drew large crowds of motoring tourists. The Carillion Bells are no longer heard by large crowds of visitors, but they are still heard by the community of Claremont. 
Their meaning now differs from their time as part of a roadside attraction. Well, I think the bells are what make you know you're home if you live in Claremont. It's um, just an inviting sound that people love. I get a lot of emails that people love them. Every once in a while I get somebody new that's moved into town that has to sleep during the day and doesn't like them, but I would say 99.9% of the feedback we get is very positive. People love the bells. I've had people call and want to know what song was played at 3 o'clock because it was their wife's favorite song and they don't remember the name of it. And There's lots of fun stories. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.